All right, Philippians chapter number 3, verse number 1, Paul says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, as we have walked through the book of Philippians, there are three main sections that we have examined. The first was Paul's triumphant experiences. Here's a man that is laid up in prison. Here's a man that has soldiers shackled to his wrists and to his ankles. And you would think he'd be complaining. You would think he would be griping about his circumstances. But no, that is not the case. One of my favorite quotes through studying in preparation for this uh, series of lessons was uh, a commentator made this statement that he turned his uh, prison chains into prayer bells and rang them in the presence of God. And I just love that so uh, sums up Paul's spirit and attitude. When he could have griped and moaned and complained about his situation, instead, man, he's rejoicing. Uh, the key, key word for the book of Philippians is joy, uh, either in the form of joy, joyfulness, or rejoicing, which is just joying a second time. Uh, Paul was constantly uh, just sort of overflowing with joy in the Lord, uh, even though he was in the, the most sorrowful and most strenuous of circumstances. So we looked at Paul's triumphant experiences. Then we uh, spent some time and looked at Paul's tremendous examples. Uh, he pointed to three people as examples of how we can have unity in the midst of, of uh, you know, uh, disharmonious circumstances, discord with fellow believers, and also how we can have joy in the midst of our trials by pointing to these three individuals. The first, of course, was Christ. And He presented to us triumph in sacrifice. And truly there is a joy that is experienced in, in giving ourselves to the Lord and for the Lord that we cannot experience apart from doing that. And then He pointed to Timothy. And Timothy was an example of triumph in service. How that through serving others he experienced joy and how that through serving others he uh, gained a, a feeling and a notion of satisfaction in his life that cannot be derived any other way. And of course that's true as well. Uh, you know, we were created to serve God and we were created to serve others. And if we're not fulfilling those two very basic fundamental roles, we're, we as I'm talking about as human beings on a very basic level are not going to be satisfied in life. That's what our life is here for. I don't want to take the time to explore it, but you think about all of the things that life entails, all of the experiences, all of the joys, all of the, maybe we could say, good things that we derive out of life, and we can get every one of those from heaven. What we cannot get in heaven is the opportunity to selflessly, in faith, serve the risen Lord and the ability to selflessly and in faith serve other people. Those are things that are uh, purely the jurisdiction of this life, this sojourn here on earth. So he pointed to Timothy, and then he pointed to Epaphroditus, who was an example of uh, joy and triumph in suffering. Uh, and Epaphroditus was someone that did not allow his sickness, his trials to prevent him from rejoicing in the Lord and being used of God. So we looked at the tremendous examples. Well, this, uh, this evening's lesson begins the third major portion of the book of Philippians. And uh, this is titled Paul's Typical Exhortation. So in every Pauline epistle, Paul never leaves us just with a theological premise. He always applies it 
to our Christian life and experience. He always tells us, he didn't, he don't just tell us what is right, he always tells us what to do with what is right. And that's what he begins to do from chapter 3, also encompassing chapter number 4. And there are three major thoughts that he is going to point to. The first of which we'll look at tonight. And it is summed up in this phrase. You cannot defraud a man who knows the power of proper theology. You cannot defraud a man. In other words, you can't scandalize him. You can't abuse him truly. You cannot rob him of the pleasure and meaning of life. If he has a clear understanding of the power of proper theology. Theology, of course, is the study of God. And we use that terminology generically to just talk about a person's belief about the Bible and the system of belief that they have developed uh, through reading and and, uh, applying God's Word. And Paul points to some great theological truths that will sort of insulate us from the devil's attacks on our life. Now, that's not to say you won't go through those attacks. But it is to say that when you experience them, you're able to transcend those things and you're able to walk in the power of the Lord. Can I make a very basic statement that I think uh, is, is biblically accurate and that informs the way we ought to look at life? The Lord's, the Lord's method is always to transcend. It is always to transcend. In other words, it is not to degrade below a particular problem. Nor is it to surpass that particular problem on equal footing, but it is always to transcend that problem and to elevate things into a whole different perspective and into a whole different realm. I'll give you a short example of that before we jump into our text. We were uh, preaching at the Chili Cook-Off on the widow's mite. And this little lady giving her, uh, you know, her out of her living, her last little bit of what she had to the Lord. And the Lord is standing by the temple and he's watching all these rich people uh, walk by and throw large sums of money into the treasury. And then he sees this little widow woman walk by and throws in two mites, which make a farthing. That's about as little money as you could possibly give. And he points this woman out and he says to his disciples, this widow woman has given more than all, more than any. Because they of their abundance gave, of their affluency, they of their their, their uh, prosperity gave. But she of her, and he used the term of her want, of her lack thereof, gave. Now stop and think about in this world how sort of unilateral that discussion is right now. There's a whole group of society that believes that a person is moral for being poor. And that if a person has money, it makes them evil, it makes them wicked, it makes them immoral. By the same token, there are people in the world today who believe that money equals morality. That if a person has a lot of money, it's because they must be a good person and that they are always a net good in society. That's how the world thinks of things. But what the Lord says transcends that perspective. He does not condemn those that are rich that are giving, nor does he necessarily laud the poverty of that woman. But rather, he says that her poverty, rather than being an obstacle, provided an opportunity that she has the ability to give more than they can give. In other words, he is not saying that her poverty is a good thing necessarily, but he transcends it above that just very elementary discussion, that very basic discussion of rich good, rich bad, poor good, poor bad. And he says, no, instead you should recognize that everything in life provides us opportunities to do something for the Lord, tailored and distinct to our particular circumstances. This woman's poverty was not an obstacle, it was an opportunity for her to give more deeply unto the Lord. If she hadn't given, listen carefully, 
carefully. If she hadn't given anything to the Lord, she would have been as guilty in her poverty as the rich fool was that didn't give to the Lord and laid up in the barns was in his prosperity. So what I'm saying is the Lord's method is always to transcend the basic elemental conversation, to elevate things above uh, sort of our, our unilateral <laughs> way of thinking. And uh, in the same way, that's what Paul does through the, the Holy Spirit's pen. He, he takes this theology and he transcends just the basic concept of what is biblically right, what is biblically wrong. And he shows how this theology has the ability, if it's rightly dividing the word of truth, to inform and, and influence our lives and to make us more like Christ. In other words, I'm not saying you won't go through problems just because you believe right. But I am saying that you believing right will equip you in going through those problems to transcend above the level of what you're experiencing and to operate on a spiritual plane above what you see and sense to be going on around you. It makes you, and and Paul used this language in the book of Colossians, he said we're to set our affection on things above. Not on things on the earth. Uh, uh, that, that we're to look towards heaven, set our affection on heavenly things, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the Father. We're dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. He didn't say you're not having problems. He didn't say your problems are not problems. But he said that your life is not where your problems lie. Your life is in heaven. Your life is in Christ. And that is untouchable by the problems that you might experience. So his overall point in these verses we're going to read is... The power that proper belief and doctrine and theology has to equip us for the things that we face. I think a lot of Christians are not interested in doctrine because they don't see it as meaningful. They think, well, you know, at the end of the day, if I, you know, if, if, if I happen to know if Adam had a belly button or if Cain, where, God, where he got his wife or if there were giants or whatever, what does that mean? And if that's your concept of theology and doctrine, no wonder you find it meaningless. But when you begin to understand that theology, the study of God, doctrine meaning a teaching, basically is what do we believe about who God is? And what does God say about who He is? Then you begin to understand, man, it touches everything in your life. Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. First and foremost, he said, it's profitable for a lot of things. He named several, but first, he says, it's profitable for doctrine. That tells me not only is is, is Scripture profitable for doctrine, but the doctrines of Scripture are profitable. And they change our lives. So that's his overall thing. You cannot defraud a man who knows the power of proper theology. And he sums this up in two categories. The first, in the three verses that we've read, he speaks about the Christian and his beliefs. And then in the remainder of our text, which will go down to, really it goes all the way down to verse number 14, but we're going to get to verse 11 tonight. Uh, It deals with the Christian and his behavior. So I want us to look at these tonight and consider these uh, two primary thoughts. First, he talks about the Christian and his belief. He begins in verse number one by talking about the dimensions of the Christian life. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you, it is safe. In other words, he says, the things that I am writing to you, I am exhorting you to two important principles that encompass what the Christian life is one of the things, my favorite things I think I've ever read it from a commentator. Uh, he made the statement, he said, Paul was the grandfather of every preacher that says, finally, my brethren, and still has half of his sermon left in front of him. Amen. Isn't that true? He says, finally, my brethren. And he's just at the beginning of chapter three. He ain't even close to wrapping this thing up. But he says, finally, my brethren. And he commands them to do two things. First, he points to them needing to be singing fervently. He says, rejoice in the Lord. This would not have fallen on on deaf ears, nor would it have been a hollow statement. 
The, the very, by the way, I'm sure there would have been people in hearing this letter read that would have said, oh, sure, it's easy for Paul to say that. But then they were reminded he's writing this from a prison cell. Maybe they could say, well, Paul has developed this ability, but we don't even really, we're not even there. We don't even really know if he's doing what he's telling us to do. He's telling us to sing in the midst of our sorrows and struggles, but how do we even know that he's doing? Undoubtedly, Epaphroditus would calm them and say, oh no, brethren, he is, he is most certainly doing it. I was in his presence not long ago, and he was rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord. But then, and, and I, I like how this was said, you can imagine a voice lifting itself above the crowd and saying, I know Brother Paul is no doubt singing in that prison. Remind yourself tonight that there was a man in the midst of this Philippian congregation that was saved, the very first or the very second convert that was saved uh, when Paul went into Philippi. And that man had been a jailer. He had been the very one that had slapped the stocks upon Paul and Silas's feet, the very one that had put the chains upon their wrists and had placed them under lock and key that night in Philippi when they began to pray and sing and sing praises unto the Lord at midnight. He had heard their praises. He had felt the earthquake. He had felt the pain of fear that ran through his heart and the suicidal thoughts that swarmed his soul when he realized that his life would have to go for theirs. He heard the sweet angelic voice of Paul when he cried out and said, Do thyself no harm. We are all here. He had heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that had so dramatically changed his life that night. And it all began because he heard Paul rejoicing in the prison house. In other words, when Paul said this, it had teeth. It had teeth. And he commands these believers to sing fervently. He had exemplified resolute praise, but he also expected resolute praise. He said, if I can praise where I'm at, then understand that you too are commanded to rejoice where you're at. By the way, he says rejoice. Not joy in the Lord, rejoice. In other words, don't give up on your joy. Very often when we go through trials, we are immediately ready to joy in the Lord, but then the trials begin to wax heavy on us and we lose our song. Paul says, don't lose your song. Keep joying in the Lord. So singing fervently. And then second was standing firmly. He says, to write the same things to you to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Paul says, I don't mind telling you the same things over again. And you shouldn't mind it either. Because what it does is instill these truths in your heart and mind. You've heard me say this, and I'm sure you've heard other preachers say it in the past. I'm not going to tell you anything you haven't heard before. And certainly for people that are faithful students of the Bible, I think probably every sermon I preach is something that they have heard before or some thought that has occurred to their mind at some stage along the way. And it's tempting. The devil will say to you sometimes, why are you even preaching that message? They already know what you're going to say. And I have to, I have to remind myself with Paul here that to write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Repetition has value. We learn everything in life from a very young age through repetition. We learn the alphabet through repetition. We learn the multiplication tables through repetition. We learn civic history through repetition. Everything we learn is an exercise in repetition. And Paul understood the value of repetition to memorization and apprehension. So he said, listen, stand firm on what you already know to be true. And allow me to exhort you once again in what you already know to be true. So we see the dimensions of the Christian life. Then notice the dangers of the Christian life. Verse number 2. He says, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now, I believe he's talking about the same group of people with all three of these labels. But he is revealing different things. First, he calls them dogs. Now, nobody would like to be called a dog. 
Uh, one of the things that I loved the other day, uh, whenever the uh, leader of ISIS, uh, Baghdadi, was, was killed, I guess on Saturday night, uh, when our president got up and made the announcement that he had been killed. Listen, you may love President Trump, you may hate him, you may hope he gets four more years or 40 more years, or you may hate, hope he's gone tomorrow. Uh, and I've got my, you know, thoughts about everything with it that don't, don't edify right at this moment. But one thing I loved was whenever he announced that man's death, he said he died like a dog and he died like a coward. That does more to strike a blow of morale to that movement than anything else. And you and I, we may not want to be called a dog. I remember I was telling Dad this the other day. I remember sitting in a meeting one time. Uh, I was way up in a church up in the country, and I knew what I was walking into. I, I knew that uh, I wouldn't have agreed with everything that was said there. But there was a fellow got up, and he said this. He said, there's a bunch of low-down, dirty dogs out there that want to tell you Jesus is coming back on a white horse. <laughs> and he was talking about me. I was the low-down, dirty dog. He knew I was in the house, and I was the one he was talking about. Uh, but when you call someone a dog, that's an insult. It's an insult. But listen, it would have been doubly so, doubly so. In this context, because there were in Philippi, as were in Galatia, as were in many of the churches that uh, were in the early New Testament day, uh, there was Judaizers in the midst that wanted to displace the grace of God uh, for the strictures of the Old Testament law. And a Jew, what they would typically call a Gentile was they call him a dog, a dog. That was a derogatory derivative term. They wanted them to know that they were not considered to be human and uh, it's interesting that Paul would turn around and use this very term on the Judaizers themselves. He's getting ready in a few moments to remind the people he's writing to that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is not unaware of the law. He, As touching the law, he was blameless. And he knows what this word means, and he turns it around upon these Judaizers and calls them dogs. But then I think it's informative. I don't just think it's insulting. I think it's informative. Because you think about what a dog is. Dogs in Old Testament law were unclean. Creatures, they were profane in the eyes of God. Not only that, dogs tend to be perilous. A dog can love you its whole life and turn on you one day. And not all of them do that. And by the way, I'm a dog person. Don't get mad at me. I'm a dog person. Uh, I'm, I like cats too. I like them with duck sauce and teriyaki sauce and sweet and sour sauce. But I'm a dog person. I am. But they can, even the best of dogs. It happens. Uh, they can be perilous. They're an animal like anything else. And then also they're pack animals in the wild. And that describes who these Judaizing teachers were that were an influence here at the Church of Philippi. Uh, these were people that had profaned the law of God. The law of God is not wrong. It's not bad. Paul himself said the law is good. But they had taken it and weaponized it to be something to enslave men instead of to uh, endear them to God. And then they were perilous. They were dangerous. They just about sank the church at Galatia. And then not only that, they tend to be, and I found this to be true with all false teachers, they tend to be pack animals. They tend to congregate. It's amazing. Listen, you can get far more people to gather around a lie than you can ever to get together around the truth. And it's amazing the things that false teachers, the disagreements, that they will put to the side in order to find fellowship and common cause. And it's sad to say, and... I like to think that in this, in this generation that I'm living in, that I and other good Bible-believing preachers are doing something to remedy this. But the sad truth is, sometimes you can't get people that agree about everything to agree about everything. Uh, false teachers, they tend to be pack animals. They tend to congregate together. By the way, dogs wreak havoc on sheep. That's what they do. There's a lot of what a shepherd did was try to protect his sheep from wild dogs. So he is describing the character of these individuals. Not only that, he describes their conduct. 
he says that they are evil workers. This implies an outward harmlessness, but an inward dangerousness. They were inward deceivers. They had fair words, but they had foul works. The idea being that from the outside everything looked fine, but the work of them, they were evil workers, not evil talkers, evil workers. The things that was produced by what they taught were evil. And then not only that, he calls them concision. You'll only find this word this time in your Bible. Uh, But it does seem to be associated with a principle and a command given in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, chapter number 21, verse 5, God forbids... Uh, the people of God, the Israelites, he forbids them from cutting themselves for the dead. And the same word that's used there is also used in 1 Kings chapter number 18, verse 28, uh, in describing the false prophets of Baal that would cut themselves and cry long. And it's interesting, you can almost hear the word circumcision in the word concision. He's going to turn around in verse 3 and start talking about circumcision. And I think what Paul is saying here is he's pointing to what they've done to the Old Testament uh, ritual of circumcision. That they have taken that thing and abused it and gutted it of its true spiritual meaning. Whereas it should have carried a meaning until the cross and then displaced by the true light, the shadow should have gone away. That's what happens when the light shows up, the shadows flee, right? When the light gets turned up, the shadows get smaller. That's what should have happened, but they had instead gutted this Old Testament precept and weaponized it and used it as something it was not. And I think Paul is saying that what they call circumcision is no different than pagan cutting. It is no more meaningful than what the heathens do when they cut themselves as a, as a pagan ceremony. So he talks about the claims of the deceivers. And uh, it's evident that that was the crux of the doctrinal heresy that was trying to infiltrate the church because he gives such emphasis to it in the next uh, couple verses about what circumcision truly, truly is and means. And then he talks about the distinctives of the Christian life. I want, if I can, to read a passage from this commentator about circumcision. So you can see in the notes, he does give three points. That the purpose of circumcision, verse 3, we are the circumcision, which do three things. We worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, our circumcision is defined by those three things. Exposing the form, expressing the faith, and excluding the flesh. We might say it this way, that spiritual circumcision causes us to do three things. One, to minister in the Spirit. Two, to magnify the Son. And three, to mortify the flesh. That circumcision was meant to foreshadow those things in the Old Testament. And we now live in the true light of the gospel of Christ and the grace of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so we now do in in practice what was done then in picture. But I want to read this to you about what circumcision was and what it meant. And I think it might inform you a little bit about, about this particular passage. The Jews lost sight of the underlying meaning of circumcision. And the rite, as rituals so often do, degenerated into an end in itself. Circumcision came to symbolize being a Jew as opposed to being a Gentile. But true circumcision is of the heart. The Old Testament act of circumcision was very painful. It was normally administered when a boy was eight days old. Adult male converts to Judaism had to submit to the rite to be brought into the good of the Abrahamic covenant. This rite, symbolic of the Abrahamic covenant, was endorsed by the Mosaic covenant. In other words, on Sinai, it was reaffirmed. Now, we as Christians come into the good of the new covenant. 
What circumcision did symbolically for the Jews, the cross does for us. So circumcision was part of bringing them into the family. Circumcision no longer does that for the Christians. still a common practice here in the West. And there's probably health benefits and so on and so forth. But the purpose of it symbolically was that it brought you into the family of God. That's what the cross does now. In the Old Testament type, the knife was applied to the instrument of man's creative power. Circumcision was a symbolic acknowledgement of the total inability of the flesh to produce spiritual seed or fruit for God. In the New Testament, the symbolic rite is abolished. Under the New Covenant, we are circumcised not in the cutting of the body with a knife, but in the death of Christ as the cutting edge of the cross is brought to bear upon our hearts. The flesh is cut off, put in the place of death, so that our new life in Christ can produce spiritual seed and true fruit for God. Paul had, this, had understood this truth for a long time, and his spirit was provoked when Jews in general, and Jewish Christians in particular, went around insisting that Gentile converts to Christ be forced to endure circumcision in order to become full citizens in the kingdom of God. Evidently, these Judaizing false teachers had come to Philippi. So in his letter, he reminded his friends that we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. In other words, he points them to the fact that what was ceremonial circumcision in the Old Testament has been displaced with spiritual circumcision in the New Testament. And that our identity in Christ is just that. It's identity in Christ, not in any manner of works or ceremonies that we may participate in. So he points to the Christian and his beliefs. Now, and this gets to the really the meat, I think, of our lesson tonight. He points to the Christian and his behavior. And this in and of itself divides itself into sort of two categories. In verses 4 through 6, he talks about his past glory. Listen to what he says, verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. So these fellows think they're somebody. They think they can trust in their flesh. He says, I could have confidence in the flesh. In fact, he goes so far as to say, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Then he goes on and describes Why he could. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. So notice two things. Notice first what he once had in verse 4. He says, I could have had confidence in the flesh. In fact, I think what he's saying is, I did have confidence in the flesh. And Paul had plenty of reason. We'll go on to describe it here in a few moments. But the hardened man that you see wreaking havoc on the church in the book of Acts uh, was a man that was fully convinced in his religious standing. He was a man that was fully confident in his own self-righteousness. It's fascinating that Paul appeals to his own personal history here. One fellow said it this way, Paul met the Judaizers on their own ground. He was once more religious than any of them had been. This is not a guy that doesn't know what he's talking about. This is a guy that has paid the cost. And he reminds them that he was once where they're at, thinking that everything he did in all of his obedience, in all of his devotion, would garner him favor with God. He goes on to catalog those things. Notice not only what once he had, but notice what once he hailed. And it it sort of falls into two categories. First, his status as a pure Jew. He says, first off, that he was a Jew by religion. He was circumcised the eighth day. He was, with, with, we might say, with full colors inducted into the Jewish religion. Before he ever even had a say in it, 
He was brought in to the Jewish religion. He was circumcised the eighth day. Not only that, he was a Jew by race. And that involved three things. First off, he had a natural, uh, national claim. He was of the stock of Israel. Some folks may have had difficulty tracing their lineage. Paul did not. Uh, he, could, he could trace you back to his forefathers. He knew beyond anything else that he was a, a Jew. In fact, if he didn't know anything else, the one thing he knew in life was that he was a Jew. And everything that he was and did was wrapped up in that identity as a Jewish person. He had a national claim. Not only that, he had a tribal claim. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. It's interesting because in the tribe of Benjamin produced two different Sauls in the Bible. The first was the first king of Israel. And uh, when he was met with David, he persecuted him. He hated him. He sought to slay him. And he would not own David's authority upon the throne in Jerusalem. When the second Saul first interacts with the son of David, he too persecutes him. Refuses to acknowledge his authority. Refuses to own him as the rightful king of Jerusalem. So what's the difference, preacher? One went to his death not accepting the king's authority. The other went to his death having bowed the knee before the king of kings and lord of lords. And isn't it interesting? Makes you wonder if the Old Testament Saul could have become a Paul if he had been willing to bow the knee to David. Just like the New Testament Saul became Paul because he was willing to bow the knee before the son of David. No doubt when Paul was a young man, he went all through the Old Testament finding every single Example, every single story, every single mention of Benjamin and the tribe of Benjamin. He would have found some good and he would have found some bad. But for better or worse, everything that he was was wrapped up in that identity. First of a Jew, second of the tribe of, of Benjamin. Not only that, he makes a parental claim. He says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. It's interesting because we can sort of take this phrase to mean a couple different things. It, usually when we use this kind of, of, of turn of phrase, this colloquial way of, of speaking, we mean somebody is an example of something. You might hear somebody say, that guy is a man's man, right? And what they mean is that amongst men, he stands as an example of what manhood should be. Or I've heard preachers say, that guy's a preacher's preacher. And what's meant by that is that, listen, when preachers get around, they want to hear that guy preach because he exemplifies what preaching is I was talking about the fellows that we had at our revival this past week and I was talking about some of the other preachers we have and I was describing them in various ways. I was saying this preacher, when I hear him preach, I'm always just awestruck by how, how new and fresh and informative and, and his sermon is and how different of a perspective he has. Another fellow, I made the statement, I said, when I hear him preach, I'm always fascinated by how in tune with the Lord he is and, and he just seems to connect with our people and our people love him so dearly. And I made the statement about one of the preachers from last week. I said, when I hear him preach, I think to myself, that's how preaching should be done. It, it, it is just a perfect balance of biblical depth and practical force and, and homiletical balance. And I think, man, that's how preaching ought to be done. He's a preacher's preacher. Paul could be saying, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews in the sense of saying, amongst Hebrews, I was a Hebrew. But it's also possible he's saying, I am a Hebrew descended from Hebrews. And he could be pointing to the upbringing that he had, to the raising that he experienced. It's interesting because the scripture is completely silent upon Paul's blood family. Uh, there's even, I think, an argument to be made, you know, that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. At least it appears that he operated in the authority of the Sanhedrin when he went persecuting the infant church. 
And it's quite possible he was part of the Sanhedrin. If that's the case, history tells us that to be a part of the Sanhedrin, a man had to be married and have children. We know that he had parents. And undoubtedly, the kind of parents that would send their young son to study at the feet of the the famed Rabbi Gamaliel would have been people that were invested in the Jewish religion. Makes you wonder about something he says here in a little while when he says, I've, I've suffered the loss of all things. Makes you wonder what all things are. Suffice it to say that when he was growing up, his, his pedigree was solid. It was solid. He talks about his status as a pure Jew, but then he talks about his stature as a practicing Jew. Verse number five, he says that, uh, concerning, or that, uh, as touching the law, he was a Pharisee. In other words, he was a fundamentalist Jew. The term Pharisee is, we use it colloquially today. If we see someone that we think is, is a hypocrite, we'll say, man, that person's a Pharisee. But when Paul was speaking, he was talking about a very distinct group of people. The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was comprised of two different parties, Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, the Pharisees persecuted Christ throughout his earthly life, and the Sadducees persecuted the body of Christ in the book of Acts. The Sadducees were spiritualists. Uh, they spiritualized and allegorized everything in the Bible, and they, they tend to be sort of mystics that didn't really accept as, as foundational truth anything. Uh, we, would, we would identify them with sort of like spiritism uh, in the early 1900s, late 1800s. Uh, they were obsessed with, you know, angels and things like that. Pharisees were more pragmatic. They were what we would consider the more biblical of the two groups. And they were grounded upon what thus saith the Lord. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a fundamentalist. He wasn't part of these, these, these liberal, weak-kneed, panty-waisted, you know, crazy liberals out here. He was a fundamentalist Jew. Amen. By the way, let me say I'm a fundamentalist Christian. I think that's right. I'm not making apology. But I'm just saying this is a guy that he, he would not have identified with all of those weak people in his mind. You know, all those starry-eyed dreamers, those Sadducees. No, man, he was a Pharisee. He was straight as a gun barrel. I mean, he was somebody that, that knew what the Bible taught. He said, I was concerning the law. I was a, a Pharisee as touching the law. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He was a fanatical Jew. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Uh, the Holy Ghost uses this term in Acts 8.3 that he made havoc on the church. Paul was not a Sunday morning only Jew. He was, he was a three times a week and Monday night Bible study Jew. Amen. He, he was in, man. He was solid. He was dedicated. It was his passion in life to go about trying to destroy the early church in the service in his mind of Jehovah. He was a fanatical Jew and he was a fastidious Jew. Notice what he says. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Reminds you of the rich young ruler. And, uh, it, you know, I'll be honest, had it not been for just the chronology, does not suffer it to be so, uh, it would almost make you wonder if Saul of Tarsus had been that rich young ruler. Because he had the same attitude that that man had when he came to Jesus. All these have I kept from my youth up. It's interesting, and I'll say a word about this in transition to the next thought here in a moment, but he does not say sinless. He says blameless. Blameless. Paul was a man that lived a clean life. So clean that nobody in that council of 70 elders could point at Brother Paul and say, that man has transgressed the law. He was blameless. He was above reproach. He was beyond rebuke. 
He was a man that was faithful, dedicated, clean, consecrated in the Jewish religion. But let me also remind you that he does say blameless and not sinless. Notice his next phrase. It begins our next and final portion for tonight. Paul's past glory we looked at in verses 4 through 6. But notice Paul's present gains. And I want to read just first off verses 7 and 8. We'll read the other three verses here in a moment. In verse 7 he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ. Two, two sections to this final portion. The second is what he desired, but first he talks about what he discounted, what he disregarded, what he set aside so that he might know Christ. And I'm fascinated by the transition. Something happens between verses 6 and 7 in the history of the Apostle Paul. You close out verse 6 and he's blameless. Nobody can accuse him. You come to verse 7 and he says, I learned that none of those things were meaningful. None of them, could I say it this way, held water. You can imagine a young Saul of Tarsus recounting or declaring his righteousness before other people. He would walk through the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he would say, I've kept that. I've never worshipped any god except Jehovah, the true God of Israel. Thou shalt make no graven image unto me. Growing up in Tarsus, it would have been easy with all of the idolatry in that town. But he could say honestly that he had never dabbled in idolatry. He had never stolen anything from anyone. He had never killed anything, anyone. He had never borne false witness, at least not to his knowledge, against anyone. He was rigorous in keeping the Sabbath day. He had always been an obedient son to his mother and his father. After all, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had kept all of these things intact. But you know, the apostle himself makes this statement in Romans chapter number 7. He says, I had not known sin, except the law said, Thou shalt not lust. Thou shalt not covet. He said, I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. Then he says, When the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. One fellow said it this way, that that tenth commandment, the very last one, Thou shalt not covet, was the iceberg upon which the Titanic of Paul's self-righteousness was sunk. The gash was opened in the hole, and all the waters flooded in. And it did not matter that he had never stolen. It did not matter that he had never killed. It did not matter that he had never made any graven images or worshipped any other god or broken the Sabbath or disregarded and, and dishonored his parents. None of that mattered anymore. Why? Because the law is like a chain. You break one link, and the whole chain is useless. He was a law breaker. The Holy Ghost put that spear tip right into his heart and life and said, Paul, you too have come short of the glory of God. You too are unrighteous, just like all those Gentiles and all those Christians and all those reprobate Jews that you condemn. You too are a lawbreaker. And in that moment, he realized that all those things that he thought were getting him to God had in fact been keeping him from God. When he heard the voice of God, it was not a voice of commendation. It was a voice of condemnation. 
Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In that moment, the Word of God, the law of God, the Spirit of God smote him down and exposed him, an unrighteous man, in the eyes of God. And now all of a sudden, these things he thought mattered. It's interesting the way he says it. (laughs) He says, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Gains and losses are two different things. I remember hearing somebody quote Warren Buffett one day about the stock market. Warren Buffett made this statement. He said, no matter what the stock market does, I never lose any money. He said, because I don't sell. He said, if you don't sell, it don't matter if it goes up, you don't gain money necessarily. If it goes down, you don't lose money. You don't lose until you go to sell. His point being, there is a neutral state you can maintain in the market, and that's dictated by whether you sell or not. The stock may gain value or lose value, but you don't gain or lose anything until you sell. In other words, there's gains and there's losses, but there's a middle ground. You know what we often think about our own self-righteousness? We rarely think of it as a gain, but we more rarely ever think of it as a loss. We often think to ourselves, well, you know, I may be depending on self and, you know, I may not be serving the Lord the way that maybe I, I really, really should, but at least it's getting the job done. Paul says the things that I thought were gains... I learned to be losses. These things were not just a a neutral proposition. These were the very things that kept me from ever seeing Him as the Messiah. He says they were gains. But I learned that I had to make a choice. It was either going to be Saul of Tarsus or the Savior. There was no in-between. I either had to uphold those things as valuable, and in doing so I had to cast Him down as unvaluable and, and unworthy... This, by the way, is the reason that he would go on later to write in the book of Hebrews that if we're gonna, if we're gonna come to Christ, we gotta come without the camp, outside the camp. Christ, ceremonially speaking, when he was made sin for us, when he was nailed to a cross because cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree, he was made ceremonially unclean in the eyes of the law. If we're gonna maintain that ceremonial cleanness, We can't go to Him. We can't touch Him. He's unclean. But the moment that we recognize that He is our Savior, He is the Messiah, and we're willing to let go of all of that and leave the camp and go unto Him, we find Him to be the Savior of all mankind. We find Him to be the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. In other words, there's a crisis moment in Paul's life. When he realizes he's a sinner, he's got to make a choice. And so what did he do? He wrote off all of his human religion. Verse number 7. Verse 8, he wrote off all of his human resources. Notice how he valued what he found in Christ. He says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. You know, we use the term excellent disassociated from other words. We'll say, man, that, you know, that pie was excellent or that coffee was excellent. But the term excellent, by the very nature of the word, requires a point of reference. Because you know what excellent means? It means it excels something else. It surpasses something else. In other words, if two cars are going uh, side by side, or if a car is going down the road by itself, there's nothing it can excel. There's got to be another car beside it for it to be excellent, because it has to excel that other car. Paul, he looks at it and he says, you know... Compared to all that I had, 
Christ is excellent. He is superlative. He is superior. Let me say it this way. He said, everything I found in the Lord was so much better than anything I found in the law. He is excellent. He surpasses all other things. That's how he valued what he found in Christ. He said, I count them but loss. I count them a hindrance. I count them on the credit or on the debit side of things. I count them nothing compared to what I found in him. And then notice how he valued what he forsook for Christ. He says, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. We know what dung is. Refuse. Offage. We understand that it's trash. It's something for which there is nothing valuable left for the host anymore. It's why your body expels it. It's because there's nothing else your body can get out of it. It's done. It's over. And he says, all those things, I came to the point I realized they didn't hold anything for me anymore. So I just threw them in the trash. And I said, all I need is Christ. He points to what he discounted, but then notice what he desired. I'll go ahead and tell you, these are some big old verses we're going to be reading. And it's not that they're lengthy, but I mean some big old ideas. And there's a lot I want to say that I won't be able to say. But I want to give you an overview of what I think Paul was getting at. Notice verses 9, 10, and 11. He says, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Notice, first off, that in, in, there's two different categories of truth here. And again, a lot I want to say that I can't say. But as a rule, in, in, in biblical exposition, every truth that relates to the, to the life of the believer has two different aspects. There is a positional aspect, and there's a practical aspect. So positional is what God chooses to see you as or treat you in light of. Practical is what God knows you to be, and what you know you to be, and what I know you to be, and what everybody else knows you to be. One of these days... The practical is going to come in perfect line with the positional. In other words, one day we're going to become exactly what he saved us to be and what he views us and treats us as. This is the reason Paul said in Romans 8 uh, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Uh, He made us to be like Christ. We are in all varying stages of resembling Christ. But one of these days, John says, when we see him, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In that moment, the positional and the practical are going to collide and meld into the realized, into the culminated, into the eternal. And we're going to be what he saved us to be. And in light of that, Paul points to both sides of this truth. First off, he points to a complete appreciation of salvation truth, of what we are, of positional truth of who we are in Jesus Christ. Notice he he sums it up in two ways. First, he points to a position that we are to enjoy. He says, be found in Him. I love this illustration. And it is only five after seven right now. So we got 55 more minutes to go. So I'm going to take the time to share it with you. Um, I said he never lied. I didn't say I didn't. Um, but I, I do want to share this with you just very, very quickly. Uh, R.A. Torrey, the first president of Moody Bible College, was talking to a man one day, trying to witness to him and win him to the Lord. And the fellow's basic... You know, bulwark, his line of defense was he said, I don't need to be a Christian to be a good person. 
And the fellow said, in fact, I know people that are, that are unashamed unbelievers. They, they are plain in, in declaring that they don't believe, but they're morally upright people. They do good things for others. They live clean lives. By all appearances, they're as moral as any Christian I've ever met. He said, by the, the same token, on the other side of the coin, he said, I know people that say that they're Christians. But they live horrible lives, depraved lives, wretched lives. They don't look anything like what a Christian should look like. So the fellow said, my conclusion is I can be a Christian without Christ. I can be moral without being redeemed. Dr. Torrey replied with this illustration. He said, it is true that a lost man may live in a morally upright manner. It is equally true that a saved man may live an unmoral life. But he said, that is not the question at hand. The question is not, are you good or are you bad? The question is, where do you stand with God? He knelt down and he drew two rectangles in the dust on the floor. And he said, imagine these two rectangles represent how we stand before God. He said, this rectangle is a place of being unregenerate, unsaved in the eyes of God. He said, this rectangle over here is a state of being regenerate, being born again, of being saved, of being righteous in the eyes of God. He said, now imagine, if you will, that these rectangles represent a place. Let's say the state of Colorado. He said, a man may live over in this unregenerate state, and he may live at 14,000 feet at Pikes Peak. He may live right at zero feet sea level, or he may be way down a thousand feet down in the mine. But it doesn't change the location of where he is. He said, an unregenerate man may be morally unregenerate. He may be moderately, uh, you know, uh, moral in his unregeneracy, or he may be completely depraved in his behavior, but he's still unregenerate. By the same token, a man can stand over here in the regenerate square. He can be righteous in the eyes of God, and he may live at 14,000 feet at Pikes Peak. He may live at sea level. He may live a 1,000 feet under the earth working in a mine, but it doesn't change where he stands. He said, it is true that a man could be unsaved and be moral. It's true that a man could be saved and be immoral. What is not true is that a man can be unsaved and right in the eyes of God. The only thing that can make us right in the eyes of God is we've got to move from one square to the other, from the old life to the new life, from the old old standing to the new standing. We've got to be born again. We've got to put, be put in that righteous position. Paul says, the reason I threw all those things away is I wanted to be found in Him. He said, I was living at 14,000 feet, but it didn't change where I was going to go when I died. And the only thing that was going to get me to heaven was I had to climb down off that mountain and move over into that other square. I had to throw all those things away so that I might be found in Him. So it's a position to enjoy. Not only that, it's a possession to enjoy. He says, be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. So he said, I had to discard a false Righteousness. I could not maintain self-righteousness. I had to be found in Him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. In other words, he says, I, again, I had to choose. I was either going to have righteousness in self or righteousness in the Savior. I love what he says here, and notice it carefully at the end of verse 9. He says, the, that which is through the faith of Christ... Not through faith in Christ, through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God. Not, not just, he's not just saying, I'm righteous and God approves. He's not just saying, I'm righteous in the way that God wants righteousness. He's saying, my righteousness is of God. My faith is the faith of Christ. 
It's, it's apprehended by faith, of course. But it's not just faith in and of itself. Faith is a lauded word in the day that we live in. Every politician that slimes their way out of a swamp up to Washington, D.C. is a person of faith. It's not a question of whether you have faith. It's what faith do you have? I like what one commentator said. He said that Christ gave his life for us. But not only did he give his life for us, he also gives his life to us. And we, through mortifying flesh and walking in obedience to the Spirit of God and to the clear teaching of Scripture, we appropriate and experience the faith of Christ. In other words, that righteousness that he lived is now lived through us as his influence permeates through our life in our obedience to his spirit. It is his faith that lives through us. So he points to a complete appreciation of salvation truth. And then he points to a complete appropriation of sanctification truth. Sanctification means to be cleansed ceremonially or to be set aside for a distinct task. And he makes three big old whopping statements that I need about eight different Apollo courses to explain to the limits of, 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 of what God has done it in my heart. And even then, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even... We'd just be looking at the tip of the iceberg versus the truth that's really there. But he points to three things that Paul says, I want to know. I want to know. I want to experience. I know I'm in him already. But I want him to be in me. I know I'm in him, but I want him to be in me. The Holy Ghost is in you and He never leaves you. But I want the life of Christ living through me. And this is how. Verse number 10. He points to three things. First off, He points to His personal gain. He says that I may know Him. That I, it's a personal thing. I may know Him. Then He points to a progressive gain. And He points to these three truths. He says, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. In other words, he wants to have a full grasp on Christ's resurrection power. The power of Christ's resurrection, we really, there's almost no limit to what we could say about it. But I want to give you a distinctly theological definition of what I think Paul's saying. The power of Christ's resurrection was that he was buried in death. He was raised to walk in newness of life. When we are baptized into the body of Christ, not by water, but by the Spirit of God, We equally are baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. We are buried with Christ in baptism. We are raised to walk in newness of life. Paul says that we, just as we've been buried in the likeness of his death, so also we are raised to walk in the likeness of his resurrection and of his power. In other words, knowing the power of his resurrection is experiencing his life being lived through us. Through us. That He is a risen Savior living through us. Not through us emulating or imitating how we believe that He lived. But rather through us, through surrender and obedience to Him, allowing Him to emanate through us, through our obedience to Him. Not only Christ's resurrection power, but also Christ's rejected position. If I'm being frank with you, I think that in my understanding of the Word of God, there is probably no phrase... For which, for me, there is more left on the table than this next phrase. It's my way of saying that I think there's probably more that I don't understand about this than there is probably any other phrase in the Word of God. And I feel like I have somewhat of a grasp of the basic meaning, but I feel like there's more depth here, more unmined earth than anywhere else. He says the fellowship of his sufferings. Some people would have us believe that what this means is, well, he suffered and we suffer and so we 
fellowship together in light of that. Some people would suggest, and this is sort of my opinion about it, I believe when it talks about the fellowship of his sufferings, I think it's talking about the, the intimate communion we enjoy with him based upon, the book of Hebrews details this clearly, based upon his being willing to identify with us in our sufferings. That he was touched, that he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, that he was tempted in all points like as we are, that he uh, suffered in that he is able to secure them also that are tempted. I think that's what it's saying. In other words, I think it's saying that when we suffer, as we approach unto His throne, there is a communion that we enjoy because we know that He understands and apprehends what we are going through. But I think for what Paul is saying here, it might just be simply sufficient to say that the closer we walk with Christ, the more that we're going to be ostracized and alienated and and persecuted just as He was. And Paul says, I want to know him so well that because they hate him, they're going to hate me because they see his life live through me. And then he points to Christ's redemptive passion. He says being made conformable unto his death. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I deviate just a hair from where the commentator goes here. He he points to the fact that Christ died for sinners and being made conformable unto his death means us dying to self for the sake of sinners. I don't think that's really what Paul is saying here. I think when he says being made conformable unto his death, very simply, Paul's talking about mortifying self, mortifying flesh, really mortifying the deeds of the body and the deeds of the flesh. And Paul says, the more I get to know him, because there's this there's this seesaw thing going on here, just like if he wanted Christ's righteousness, he had to let go of his righteousness. By the same token, if he wants to know Christ more, it's going to happen proportionally to how much he's willing to. To mortify self. How much he's willing to say, I don't matter. What I want doesn't matter. What I desire to do does not matter. How I want to respond does not matter. What matters is his will in my life. And I think in as much as we do that, the same way that through his resurrection power, our new life is resurrected and raised to walk with him, through the, through the power of his death, our old life is mortified and nailed to the cross with him. And just as he... Uh, rose to die no more, we too reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, that we might be alive unto God. And notice this last phrase. I don't, you know, I'm going to say a word and leave it here, but I, don't be surprised if I wind up saying another word about it next week, too. Verse 11, he says, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. I don't have time to go into all the language here, but the term resurrection of the dead is found a lot of times in your Bible. But it is a little unique here in that it, it, coupled with the phrase, has the idea of an externality or of something being manifest. So the phrase resurrection of the dead, it, it always uh, references the idea of the dead being raised. And it's usually spoken of, sometimes it's spoken of the, the saved being resurrected to everlasting life. Sometimes it's referring the lost being raised up unto judgment, unto punishment. But it's sort of a generic term for what it says. Resurrection, raising of the dead. But what's unique is, is Paul says it and he couples with it this idea of that event being externalized, being lived out. Uh, sort of an, an, an out-resurrection. Almost like the idea in, uh, that, uh, of, like if you were to draw a circle and, you, and, and to draw a line connecting to that circle. And it can either be pointing to the inside of that circle, or it can be pointing to the outside of that circle. In this phrase, the idea is that that line is pointing to the outside. It's branching out 
from that event. I will tell you what I believe, and the commentators didn't really give any good answers on this, but God had showed me this years ago and confirmed it in my heart through the context of Scripture. I don't mean any kind of audible voice or anything, but I mean through studying this passage. This is what I think he's saying. That the purpose, and he goes on to confirm this, he says, If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. God saved us to make us like Jesus Christ. The power of the resurrection is that Christ can live through us. Through us. Not just live for us, not just live unto us, not just live in light of us, but live through us. And I think what he's saying in his perspective game, in what he's aiming for, in what he's driving for, is I think what he's trying to get at is he's trying to say, I want that to be a reality. We'll say more about it next week, but I think if we could sum it up in this phrase, some of you are saying, preacher, please sum it up. (laughs) But I think I would probably say it this way. Paul is saying there's a positional truth and there's a practical truth. And one day those things are going to collide. One day, one will be eclipsed by the other. But he said, I'm not waiting till heaven. I'm not waiting till the resurrection of the dead when I have a new body a perfect body, when this vile body is made like unto His glorious body. He said, I'm not waiting till that day. I want to attain unto that reality even now. Paul's very clear. He says, not as though I had already attained. Not as though I were already perfect. He's not talking, he's not preaching sinless sanctification here. He's not saying I never sinned. He's admitting that he sins. He's not saying he's already attained, but he does say I follow after. He said, I strive, I press toward, forward towards the mark of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying that in light of what God has done in my life, I'm pressing forward trying to be more like Christ every single day.